The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. The text for this morning's sermon is in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. I invite you to follow along as I read. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. I want to talk about three things in this text, two of them very briefly and one of them more extensively. And you can all see them. I don't think it takes any great time on my part now to get these three truths out of the text. And so I have a special angle I want to come at them with. The three truths are these. Number one, God created human beings. God created you. Number two, God created us in the image of God. Number three, God created us male and female in the image of God. Now, it's possible to believe all those truths and not be a Christian. And that's obvious because they stand right here in the Hebrew Scriptures. And therefore, a good Orthodox Jewish rabbi who believes his Scriptures will say amen to those three truths. But even though it's possible to believe those three truths and not be a Christian, I believe those three truths point to Christianity. Each of those three truths beg for completion as we read them today. And that completion comes in Christianity. And that's what I want to talk about today. The completion of these three truths, especially the third one, in Christ and His redeeming Work in creating a people for himself and an ultimate destiny of glory. So let me take the first two briefly and then dwell on the third one with you. The first truth was, excuse me, the first truth was human beings have been created by God. Now that begs for an explanation. Why? Why did God create human beings? When you make something, you have a reason, right? I was over at Bethel for a piano recital on Friday night, and I passed by the art room, and there are those little stools in there with all those uh, pottery wheels. And I thought, anytime anybody makes something there, they got a reason. They make it for something. It might be purely aesthetic, but it's always for something. And so whenever you hear God created you, it just begs to be finished. Why? Well, the Old Testament says things like they're going to have dominion over the fish of the sea and all the birds and animals. Or, and it says things like uh, they're going to live for God's glory and the world be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. But you look out over the world today and what do you see? You see a world basically in rebellion against God. 
You don't see a world that's just filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, the way the waters cover the sea. And so, again, it just begs for completion. Well, if God did this and if God is God and we look out there and it's just a mess, well, it just begs to be finished. That's what Christianity is all about. Jesus came into the world to finish the work of his Father in creation. That's why he created for God's glory to be provided through faith in Christ as we understand the the end of the story. The second truth is almost the same. Just let me add this. God created us in his image. Now that's got to have something to do with why we're here. Why we exist. What's unique and special about this creation called human beings or mankind. We're not like frogs, horses, mosquitoes, not even monkeys. There is a qualitative difference that's very plain in this text between humans and animals. We are in God's image And no animals are in God's image. But then you look at the world and you say, what a mess we have made of this awesome dignity. You look around the world or you just look in the mirror and you say, is there any vestige of God's image left in me? We have so obscured what we were created to be in the image of God, sometimes we wonder... Can I dare say, I am like God? I tremble to say that. But we, let's just ask the question. Are you and I, sinners though we be, like God? And the answer, of course, is yes and no. Let me dwell on the yes for a minute. When you get to Genesis chapter 9, for example, verse 6, after the flood, and God sees that the heart of man is still going to be corrupt, he makes some new rules for how to get along in a sinful society. And he says in verse 6 of Genesis 9 to Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed for... God made man in his own image. Now, what that says very plainly is here we are many years later. After sin has entered the world, after judgment has fallen, foreseeing the coming of murder in the world from hearts like ours and saying, they are in my image. Okay, so the answer is yes. Everybody in this room. Yes, you are like God. You may not kill a human being like a mosquito. In fact, you forfeit your life, according to this text, if you murder a human being. But now let's talk about no. I mean, you, you all, if you're honest, balk at saying, I am like God. Because we know we're sinners. We know we have messed up this divine image. Whatever dignity is there is so residual and small that we hesitate to claim it. 
And so the answer is, we really need something to happen in order to bring the yes into a full yes. In order to bring the residual dignity of being in the image of God fully into expression. And there we are, begging for Christianity. Being created in the image of God, yet being sinners, begs for Christianity. And what is Christianity? Christianity is the reclamation of, a, of, of just a, a group of people who have just so wrecked the image of God in themselves and in the world. And Jesus comes and says, all right, I and my father teamed up to create mankind the first time. And they have fallen into debauchery and corruption and sin and rebellion. I will come a second time at great cost to myself and begin a reclamation project. And what he's trying to do is bring us back into full conformity the way Adam and Eve started out. And I believe even beyond where they started out in our spiritual perfections. I call it a reclamation project because I believe so much in the process nature of sanctification. Sanctification is the beginning of a reclamation project which comes to conclusion in the last day when Jesus comes back. So, my point so far is this. Being created by God and being created in God's image, both of those truths, when you see them over against what's become of mankind... Beg for the New Testament. They beg for Christ and completion and redemption. You really don't know the meaning of creation and of the image of God until you see it completed in the work of Jesus Christ. Now I want to turn to the third truth that I mentioned that I see in these verses and talk about its relationship to the work of Jesus. The third truth was God created us in his own image, male and female. This points to Christianity at least in two ways. One, we'll develop each one separately. One is in terms of the mystery of marriage. The other is in terms of the historical ugliness of the relationship of men and women. So we'll focus on both of those. When you focus on the mystery of marriage, or when you focus on the historical ugliness of the relationship of men and women, both of those lead you straight to Jesus Christ. The other is in terms of the historical ugliness of the relationship of men and women. So we'll focus on both of those. When you focus on the mystery of marriage, or when you focus on the historical ugliness of the relationship of men and women, both of those lead you straight to Jesus Christ. Let's take them one at a time. The mystery of marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, right after the creation of woman from... Adam's side. Moses draws out this conclusion. Verse 24 of Genesis 2 says, Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, do you remember what Paul did with this in the letter to the Ephesians? 
chapter 5, verse 31. He said that, let me just quote it for you. He quotes the verse, he quotes Genesis 2.24, and then he says, This is a great mystery, and I say it refers to Christ and the church. So he takes, he takes his clue from Genesis 2.24. He sees hints and pointers in the Old Testament that God is treating himself as a husband and his people as a wife or a fiancé. And then he draws out the full implications of the mystery and says, the meaning of marriage is to represent... Christ's relationship to his church. The meaning of marriage is to portray to the world the love of Christ for the church in the loving headship of the husband for the wife. And the meaning of marriage is to portray the submission of the church to Christ in the relationship of a wife. To her husband. So he calls Genesis 2.24 a mystery because God hadn't revealed all that. That's what a mystery is in the New Testament. A mystery is something not wholly revealed. It's not something beyond human comprehension. It's something that has not yet been fully revealed. And when God said, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife in covenant commitment, and those two will become one flesh... And then began to trail out in the Old Testament hints and pointers about his relationship to his people. This was intended to be a mystery of Christ's relation to his people. Which now is unfolded for us in the New Testament. So do you see then why I say that creating male and female in the image of God begs for completion? In the New Testament, in the work of Christ. Because creating man, male and female, is the uh, foundation and framework for the institution of marriage. And marriage points toward Christ and the church. So creating man, male and female, as a foundation for marriage, points towards Christ and the church as a great mystery. You really cannot know the meaning of male and female in marriage until you know that its meaning is Christ and the church. There's a lot of things you can say about marriage that's good, but you can't get to the heart of marriage. You can't get to God's ultimate purpose and design for marriage until you see that. Now, that's a very foreign thought for people today. It's a foreign thought for most Christians, lest you attend wedding services here at Bethlehem a lot because you hear it there. It's a foreign thought for several reasons. Marriage is a secular institution as well as a Christian one. It exists in every culture, quite apart from whether there's been any Christian influence in that culture. And therefore, we're not prone to look at all these non-Christian marriages in the world millions and millions and millions and millions of them, and say, oh, the meaning that is Christ and the church. But it is. That's exactly what God means 
for this institution to mean on every hand. Our very existence as male and female in marriage cries out for Christ to make himself known in relationship to the church. So Christianity completes our comprehension of the marriage covenant. Christianity completes our comprehension of the marriage covenant. Let me try a picture for you. It's a real familiar picture, but maybe give it a twist at the end that you haven't thought of before, maybe. Um, the picture is of the second coming. He's coming back. Jesus Christ is coming again. Hasten the day, Lord Jesus. When he comes, the heavens will be rent. He will descend upon the clouds, the angel said. The trumpet will sound. He will be attended by tens of thousands of angels in holy array, bright as the sun. He will dispatch those angels to the four winds to gather his elect from all over the world, from every people and tribe and tongue and nation. And when they gather, his reclamation project of sanctification will come to its appointed consummation. Every wrinkle will be ironed out, no spot or blemish anymore. The bride will be prepared and he will spread a great banquet and as it were take her arm and seat her, millions upon millions of saints, and stand at the head of the table and say these words. This was the meaning of marriage. And now that the reality has come, henceforth there will be no marriage or giving in marriage. Let me recall for you what we're doing. We're trying to see the truths of these verses here in their completion in Christ Jesus. We've seen creation, creation in God's image, and now we're looking at two ways that creation as male and female begs to be completed in Christ. And the first way we've looked at is through the mystery of marriage. Creation creates the framework of male and female for the ordinance or institution that God creates of marriage. Marriage points toward Christ and the church coming to consummation in the age to come, and therefore creation as male and female also points toward that great consummation. You cannot know why we were created male and female in marriage without Jesus Christ in relationship to his church. Now let me turn to the second way that creation as male and female points toward Jesus Christ and his work. I call it the historical ugliness of the male-female relationship. The historical ugliness of the relationship of men and women over the centuries. Once you see that, and you know that God created man and woman in his image, something's got to give. Let me explain what I mean by the historical ugliness of, of the relationship of male and female. Right here in Genesis 2 and 3, and we're going to talk much more about this next week, 
You know the story. Adam and Eve sin. They eat the forbidden fruit. God comes to them in the garden to call them to account. And he says to Adam, what's gone on here? What have you done? And listen to what he says. Note very carefully what has happened to the relationship between man and woman created in the image of God. He says to to God, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. What does that mean? That means that this relationship is over in terms of the way God created it to be. If you are going to put anyone to death, you put her to death. And really, God, it's your fault. That's a pretty, that's a pretty big fall, isn't it? That's a pretty great collapse. I see here the beginning of all domestic violence. I see the beginning of all wife abuse. I see the beginning of all rape. I see the beginning of all sexual slurs. I see the beginning of all the ways that have been found to belittle woman created in the image of God. It all comes with sin. Now, Genesis 3.16, you read a little farther and you find out God's curse upon this situation. Listen to these words of God's curse that will affect the male-female relationship. It says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now the result of sin and the curse, therefore, is very clearly a conflict between the sexes. Conflict. One way to put it would be like this, and we'll unfold this in detail next week. Domineering man and devious woman. And that is not the way we were created to be. That's the way we will be wherever sin has the upper hand. But it's not the way God created Adam and Eve to be. That's the curse. I remember a man called me on the phone and said, I'd like to come give a seminar for the men of your church. I said, okay, that's fine. I'll, but I have to hear what you're going to say first. So he said, okay, get some of your men together. So I gathered about four or five of you guys together and got this guy to my living room. And he gave us an hour's presentation. And when it was over... We let him go, and I looked at these guys and said, what do you think? And we to a man said, this will never do. Because he took this verse, 16, and he made it a model for how to relate. I've seen that done many times. And there's a very, very sensitive mistake to be made here by those who hold my position that there really is a role for a man to be a leader in his home, which I'm going to talk about in coming weeks. This is not talking about that. This is talking about the abuse of that. Now, let me ask this question. How does this ugliness point to Christianity? It points to Christianity because Christianity came into the world to heal this ugliness. 
Jesus Christ, and I'm going to spend a long time one of these weeks on just unfolding for you all the ways that Jesus in his own ministry began to overturn the curse and turn things around for us as male and female. Let's just, let's just think for a minute now. Genesis 1, 26-28 says, He created them... Male and female in his image. If you want to see that again even more clearly, you can see it in Genesis 5, 1 and 2. But clearly, the implication of that verse, I think we'd all agree, is this. Male and female exist in equality of personhood. Male and female exist in equality of dignity. Male and female exist in mutual respect. Male and female exist in harmony. Male and female exist in complementarity. I am not a female. My wife is not a male. We must not try to be the opposite to what we are. We are complements to each other. We exist in unified destiny. But where's all that in the world? Especially historically. Especially in cultures where Christianity has had no impact. It's in the healing of Jesus. And there's so much to say here, which is why I'm going to talk about this for weeks. But I have two things to say about this healing this morning in the time we've got left, quickly. The first comes from Peter, 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 7. It's a familiar verse. I want to take one phrase out of it. It says, husbands and wives are fellow heirs of the grace of life. Fellow heirs of the grace of life. Now, what does that mean? It means that in Christ Jesus, we discover what it meant to be created male and female in God's image. What it meant was, together, in your complementary relationship, you both with equal dignity and personhood are to image forth the glory of God. And then at the end, Peter picks it up and finishes the story and says, together... With equal personhood and equal dignity, you are to inherit the grace of life. That's what, that's what the healing ministry of Jesus does. It, it draws out the eschatological, the end time implications of what the beginning meant. The beginning said, both together in the image of the Almighty, unlike any other being in the universe, the end says, together into glory. If any husband or wife forgets that, it'll ruin the relationship. So, creation as male and female in God's image begs for completion in healing in that the healing reveals and enables the fulfillment of what it meant to be created together, male and female, in the image of God. One more observation about this healing. And if you're sitting there as a single person and saying to yourself, is he ever going to say anything about singleness in male and female? I've got lots to say about singleness. Lots more than I've got to say this morning. But that's what I want to say now. You know, some people think that the most radical thing Paul ever said about male-female relations was Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female. 
I don't think that's the most radical thing he ever said. I think the most radical thing he ever had said was in 1 Corinthians 7 when he said this. To the unmarried and widows, I say it is well for them to remain single as I do. I think that's the most radical thing he ever said about male and female. Because women couldn't make it. Couldn't make it in that culture as single. I mean, that's no big deal today, right? No big deal. A woman can work anywhere, anytime she wants. So I'm, I'll stay single. Big deal. You talk about the culture in Judea and Corinth, and you, say, you, you look out over your congregation to all the single women and men and say, I think you all ought to stay single. But now there's, there's a deep, deep theological implication to this statement. And let me try to draw that out. But let me finish the quote before I do. I'm going to jump over to the end of 1 Corinthians 7 where it says, uh, The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord. The unmarried woman is anxious about the affairs of the Lord and how to be holy in body and spirit. I say this not to lay any restraint upon you. He's not against marriage. But to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, let's just think of this. Man is created male and female in the image of God as a a framework to make marriage possible. And Paul comes along and says, male and female, if you can, don't get married. That has to mean, that has to mean that the healing of male and female intended by Jesus Christ is not dependent on marriage. It has to mean that. The healing intended by Jesus Christ and brought into the church is not dependent upon marriage. In fact, Paul's experience as a single man and his recollection of Jesus as a single man taught him that there is a kind of single-minded devotion to the Lord possible for a single person that is not usually the portion of a married person. Here's another way to say this. Marriage is a temporary institution for this age until the resurrection of the dead. The essence of the meaning of this temporary institution is to represent Christ in his relationship to the church. That's what husband and wife mean at their deepest theological root. But when the reality comes, when the Lord returns, when we are raised from the dead and given new bodies, Jesus said there will be no marriage or giving in marriage. Why? Well, there may be many reasons, but I'm commending to you this one reason this morning. When the reality comes, the symbol can go. And if the reality was always Christ in his intimate, loving relationship to the church, then the symbol of that in husband and wife can go. Now, the implication of that for singles is very profound. You think about it this afternoon.
What it means is there is no necessary essential part in being part of the symbol. You don't need to be a part of the symbol of the reality to have a fullness of human being. If everything is pointing to an experience of devotion to Christ in which we will be the bride and he will be the husband, and we will come into consummation of relationship with him forever and ever, and marriage will fall away, what difference does it make if you're married in this age? Some are called to emblem, to, to be an emblem of the, of the reality, and some are called not to be. In fact, Paul says, everything, let everything be cultivating a devotion to the Lord. And so let me try to sum up quickly. We're over time, and I'll just stop by summing up. Number one, we saw God created human beings. And all of that pointed towards Christianity because we just begged to know why we were created. And Jesus makes very plain why out of the awful situation we've gotten ourselves into. Second, we were created in God's image. And when we look into the mirror, we know something's got to change here. This is not the way it was supposed to be. I am not what I ought to be. Something needs to work in me and get me reclaimed for God. And Jesus comes and says, that's why I'm here. I, I go into reclamation projects with all imperfect people who are repentant and concerned about their falling short of the glorious image of God. And then the third thing we've talked about is we are created male and female in God's image, which means no one can fully grasp what it means to be male and female in marriage until they know Jesus and his relationship to the church. Secondly, no one can know the true destiny of being created male and female until we know that we are to be fellow heirs of the grace of life. And third, no one can fully understand the meaning of singleness as male and female in God's image until they learn from Christ that in the age to come there will be no marriage nor giving in marriage, but a glorious destiny in which we as male and female enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb. So my admonition to us this morning is believe that you were created by God. Believe that you were created in God's image and recognize that as male and female, you are called to be utterly, radically, and uniquely devoted to Jesus Christ above all other human relationships. A stand for prayer. I praise you, Father, our Creator and our Redeemer. You have made us and we are yours. You have redeemed us. And we are on the way to becoming what you meant us to be. And I'm so thankful for your patience and your mercy toward us in Christ Jesus, your Son. And I pray that we would see all of life, married life, single life, sexual life, and all the implications of maleness and femaleness in relationship to you and to your Son, Jesus Christ. And recognize that everything we are as male and female is pointing us towards the great consummation when we will sit with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And may our life together as male and female in this church make plain the beauty 
of Christ. We lift him, we exalt him, we bless him. We want everything we are to be for his glory. And all the people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from DesiringGod.org. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy and share from thousands of resources on our site, including books, sermons, articles, and more, available free of charge. DesiringGod.org exists to help you treasure Jesus more than anything else, because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him.